grab your popcorn and snacks, find a comfy spot, take a seat or lie down, and let me transport you to a place of fantasy, ghost stories, ancient legends, odd creatures, alien encounters, and other magical topics. You may even decide to join the conversation. From faraway lands to your own backyard, with a small dash of pixie dust, turn out the lights and open your minds. The journey is about to begin. Okay, sorry about that. <laughs> it's already going to be one of those days, isn't it? Hello, welcome to California Haunts Radio. My name is Charlotte. I'm going to be your host for the next hour, I hope. Hang on, let me get over here. Let me get my buttons going here. Anyway, we've got a great show for you tonight. I'm also the owner of the California Haunts Paranormal Investigation Team based out of Sacramento, California. We are 45 strong up and down the state. That means if you have a paranormal need and... Uh, we, that means we can get to you because we have people all over. And if we're not near you, you know, almost every county, if we're not near you, we can get to you. That's the cool part about it. Anyway, I have a good show tonight. If you're watching from Facebook, please, 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 excuse me, sit here. My S's are really prominent for some reason. If you're watching from Facebook, please, um, please hit that follow button because we're looking for followers. If you're watching from YouTube, Please hit that subscribe button. There's 250 videos over there that have different topics that I think you guys might be interested in. Please, please, please subscribe if you're watching from Twitch, same thing. Anyway, tonight's going to be an interesting night. We're going to be talking about secret military program having to do with hallucinogenic jug, uh, drugs. <laughs> it's one of those days I can't pronounce. So my guest tonight, Reed Kirby, and a surprise guest, which is, hang on one second. Let me get over here real quick. I got a message. Nick Rigdon's going to be on with us tonight as well, and he produced the documentary about this program. So that was a surprise. So I'm real excited about that. So um, without further ado, I'm going to bring these gentlemen on. So here we go. Hello, sirs. Hey. Can you hear us all right? I can hear you. Reed, say something. I'm doing fine. How are you doing? I can hear you all. Thank you for coming, Nick. This is a surprise. Thank you. Oh, it's my pleasure. Thanks for having us. I appreciate it. So tell me about you guys and how you got, you know, how you got involved with this, this research on this program. Well, I've been uh, researching the uh, military history of chemical biological weapons for over 30 years now. Uh, my primary role in doing that is to understand um, basically why. Why do these exist? Why would we consider using them? And um, what is what are the issues around them? And Reed and I connected uh, through our mutual um, friend and colleague on Reed's side, uh, Dr. James Ketchum. And I yeah, think yeah. that's how we originally connected together that I approached Dr. Ketchum for an interview and uh, he said that I should be in touch with Reed Kirby because he knows everything under the sun about chemical weapons. So tell me about the program. Well, the program is streaming on Discovery Plus right now mm -hmm. and anyone can uh, tune into that at any time. Um, it's been a, uh, a sojourn of a, of a journey here, uh, about 10 years, making this documentary. 
Um, I connected with uh, James Ketchum, who is uh, head research director of Edgewood's psychochemical program, uh, I would say about 10 years ago. And um, he finally um, allowed me to do an interview with him a couple of years into our correspondence. And I had an extensive interview with him. And I knew that uh, this would be an incredible story to tell. So um, it's, been, it's been a while in the making and uh, Discovery saw how special this, uh, this program could be and they funded it and we made it, a, uh, I think, a very um, uh, interesting documentary about uh, the Army's uh, uh, journey into psychedelics and psychochemicals. Now, why did the Army want you to get involved with that stuff? Well, to look at it... Um go back in history, you had really the only thing we could do at the uh, time during Eisenhower was uh, tactical nuclear weapons. And um, if you looked at what our national security was, it was based on total war with nuclear weapons, mm -hmm. massive retaliation. Um, the thing is, is there was other kind of conflicts brewing towards the uh, late half of the 1950s, what we call limited wars. And no one wanted to have something to where they would use nuclear weapons and that would escalate immediately to an all-out nuclear war. So they looked at alternatives. And one of those alternatives were psychochemicals. And um, they presented that to Eisenhower. He said it was a splendid idea, along with other incapacitating chemi and chemical biological agents. And there was a, cash, a crash program to uh, try to create these for the Army to use in the field. Well, when we talk about psychochemicals, what are we talking about? Well, initially, LSD was a big one, what they call Agent K. Uh, problem with that is it take about 30 minutes to take effect and last for only about six hours. And um, the major problem, and this is where Jim Ketchum comes in, really, is that hallucinating doesn't mean the same thing as not capable of fighting. Okay. So with Jim Ketchum, his role in this was quantitatively showing what could be done to incapacitate soldiers in the field and make them incapable of fighting. So that's what he was working on. And then there was an agent called BZ, which was a um, something that would cause more like delirium than hallucinations. That would truly put someone out of action. It took a few hours to work, about half hour to 12 hours, but it would keep someone out of action for one to five days. Wow. Then there was other chemicals that were in the same class as BZ. There was a EA3834, which was a lot interchangeable with tear gas, is one comment they had. And it would take half hour to work and last only up to about 12 hours. And another one that was called uh, EA3167 that was really potent. It'd take a few days to take effect, but it would keep someone out of action for weeks. Wow. It, they would seem psychotic for a long period of time. That's, that's incredible to me because when you're saying about how long it takes effect, I was thinking because I have back problems, so I take Narco. And I was thinking, geez, within 15 minutes, I'm feeling, you know, really good because yeah. I'm not hurting. And to think it would take that long for that to take effect. But I guess I guess once it did take, take effect, it, it really messed up the brain, right? Um, very much so. The uh, person starts to get um, agitated. They have memory, memory lapses. They seem like they are in a drunken stupor. Um, 
you know, there's a, in the, if you watch the documentary, there's some video showing people under the effect of it and they're confused. They're befuddled. Um, you know, they're supposed to be doing guard duty and instead they're just pounding the guard gate back up and down closed and open because they're just not capable of uh, interpreting the environment around them. And then, you know, they had to have military volunteers to test this stuff, right? Most certainly, yeah. And did the guys know what they were volunteering for? Or was it just something, you know, you know, volunteer for this to, all fl- you know, for the whole flag and, and family thing? I'll let uh, Nick answer that because he had talked to a lot of the veterans on this. <laughs> yeah, I, I did connect with a lot of the uh, the vets. Uh, well, I wouldn't say a lot of uh, just a handful because uh, I think over s- there was uh, 7,000 enlisted soldiers who went through the program. Mm-hmm. I believe there was just a couple of hundred, if I'm correct in saying that, Reed, that went through the psychochemical program itself. Right. And um, I connected with those guys and across the board i think the consensus was they weren't properly informed about the experiments that they were partaking in and um there's a reason for that as well because this is a very um unique um approach to human experimentation because this is very much um suggestive and very uh, a very kind of mental um experience that they would go through so if they were told that the drugs that they that they were being given drugs and that these could be the possible side effects of the drugs that could alter the uh, conclusions and the, and the and the data and the actual experience itself of these soldiers so they were kept in the dark they were told that they were uh, exp- they were testing military equipment and safety gear, um, but Dr. Ketchum had a very very rigid and r- rigorous scientific approach to this program and this experimentation. He, when the soldiers would come in, they would volunteer for this program at their bases, and they would travel to Edgewood Arsenal in Maryland. And once they got there, they would be put through an incredibly rigorous testing, pre-testing um, uh, uh, um, program, which would test their their not only physical health, but their mental health as well, to see if they could handle the 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 drugs that they were going to be given. Um, previous to Dr. Ketchum coming to the program, there was another um psychiatrist i believe he's a psychiatrist he was really um his name is dr um van sim and he had really no uh scientific uh framework to the program um so when dr ketchum came in he really vetted a lot of the soldiers that came through there to make sure that they were hardy both physically and mentally to go through this program and there was only a very select amount of soldiers who would then go on to do the psychochemical testing. And those were the, 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 the brightest of them all and the most stable. Um, that said, the drugs that they were given 
really were incredibly powerful, very potent, potent agents. And so there, though there wasn't any recorded um, instances of uh, soldiers really kind of going off their rockers, they all did. They all lost control. They were, they were, and by design, by design, exactly. And it, but it wasn't until, you know, decades later that they realized that there was possibly some real long-term effects of these agents that they were given. Um, And how were they given to them? Was it through food? Did they just take them or, or how was that done? They did a variety of methods. Um, some of that was just orally. Uh, others was injection. And uh, then there was also by breathing it in, respiration. They even did a field trial with uh, smoke generators and put people downwind of that. Um, yeah. I mean, ultimately, the intent was to use weapons that would be like uh, smoke grenades covering a large area. And and that was what was... I mean, interesting about Ketchum as a character that we really delve into in the documentary um, is that he really was a true believer that yeah. psychochemicals were uh, could pave a, a way to a more humane approach to warfare. Mm-hmm. Where I mean, he would say, and there's there's in the interview in the documentary, he would say that you know this was a a much more humane approach than ripping soldiers apart with bullets and bombs. We could just float a, a delirium-inducing cloud over an enemy troop, incapacitate them, and take them as, you know, uh, uh, prisoners. prisoners. Yeah. yeah. So and, and, they, and they even had, they even back in the time where like, you had like the Berlin crisis where they're concerned about people jumping the wall and possibly causing a riot starting a war. And they're thinking if they use something like BZ on that, they could knock them out and then separate them without firing a shot. In theory, it's nice. I mean, in theory, it is nice. Yeah. I mean, even <laughs> if, I mean, if you think about like if the army did go through and, and and advance that program in the age of terrorism, mm-hmm. where enemy combatants are often mixed together with civilians that these types of weapons could be very effective on the modern day battlefield. Mm -hmm. But the army did shut this program down in 1975. uh, And that was really in, in a, in a, in a large wave of kind of criticism of some of the cold war antics that were going on, especially with the CIA delving into drugs and the Edgewood program kind of got wrapped into that whole scenario. Yeah. What it makes me think about is the guys that came back after being hit with Agent Orange. You know, the after effects of that. I mean, this is this, this is similar to what we're talking about. Is they're looking at, you know, like you say, either, either doing it via smoke bombs or even dropping it from an airplane. It's similar, it's similar but different. In, in a way that Agent Orange affected those soldiers physically. Mm-hmm. It was a cancer-causing agent. It's very difficult for these soldiers, even today, to make a case that they were affected mentally mm-hmm. yeah. by these drugs. And there's this, a, yeah. 
there's a thing also historically one of the problems i had when i started the program was there was really a casual attitude towards psychochemicals they don't cause physical harm so the people initially doing the experiments before jim ketchum even got to edgewood their attitude was it was like slipping someone a mickey or getting them drunk mm -hmm. so in that case they're just kind of like yeah there's no real harm to it so we don't need to inform them because we don't want a placebo effect and you know there's they're going to come out of this just fine you know the only thing they're going to have is maybe a bad trip <laughs> but and, we see yeah. this is not nearly the same later <laughs> right, right there was there's very little follow-up with these soldiers yeah after the fact and this is a um you know this this is something that they were promised that they would be followed up medically and um and some of these soldiers that i've talked to who are now older men you know, they still struggle with some of the after effects from stemming from their experiences at Edgewood. Nightmares, flashbacks. Some of the guys I talk to don't leave their houses. They don't they don't drive cars, you know. But it, the thing about that is that it's very difficult to make a case to the VA to say, hey, I was involved with some drug secret drug experiments in the in the Cold War. And I think that they screwed me up. And because the VA would say, well, prove it. Yeah. Prove it. And a lot of these guys were also combat vets as well. So mm -hmm. they would go to Vietnam, you know, and they'd come back and maybe do a, a stint at Edgewood. And so it, is it PTSD from combat or is it the drugs? So it's a very difficult, um, it's a challenging uh, case to, to, to make with the VA for these soldiers. Well, we, we also have have to see it because it's like with any surgical procedure you get in the hospital or when you sign when you go in to see your doctor, you sign up to say, OK, yeah, I, I give you permission to to treat me. Which is, I mean, that's what they were doing, essentially. You volunteer for this thing, sign yeah. a little paper and, you know, they got they can do whatever they want. So it's hard to build a case around that. That is true. And that the uh, documentary goes into some details on the origin of that legal doctrine around that um but the thing like you bring up like gulf war syndrome uh agent orange this kind of testing uh nuclear testing um also there was seventy thousand veterans that participated in uh, experiments with mustard gas in world war ii these guys all have like possible latent effects from this but we don't know if it's really real or is it because they worked in the asbestos industry afterwards or a bunch of other things. And it just brings to mind that we really need to do more with follow-up after veterans serve, that we need to do things to where there is cohort studies to see, did their service cause ill effect to their health? Yeah, it's an interesting aspect because we, you know, as a nation, you know, the messaging is that we take care of our vets. Yeah. And initially how i how i did stumble upon the edgewood program was a previous documentary i made for history channel on the atomic vets and the atomic vets if you know this charlotte they were the soldiers who were during our the cold war we 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 were testing a lot of atomic bombs out in our deserts and the culmination of that testing was literally like we had a nuclear war in the middle of America. The fallout was incredible on that. But 
also the army wanted to see how how soldiers would if soldiers could perform and how quickly they could perform after we dropped a bomb so they sent a lot of these soldiers in very 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 quickly after we we would test one of these bombs and a lot of those soldiers developed of course cancer after the fact now when i talked to those soldiers they kind of echoed what the edgewood soldiers were saying which yeah. was that the army really just wants us to die off so it can sweep this thing under the rug and it's ironic that our messaging in america is that we take care of our vets but when it gets down to brass tacks that is not always the case and the secrecy is the other big impediment to it because these things are so secret that the vets don't feel they can talk about it and on top of that you have the documents the supporting evidence that they were even there is also considered to be secret and is unavailable to them i was going to ask you about that if that's been if it's declassified yet uh not nearly enough <laughs> unfortunately the problem is because it's considered a weapon of mass destruction it's routinely reclassified so you have things that should have been declassified back in the 1970s and to this day they're not available to the public well i could see why they would have a light attitude about it i mean we just at that point we had just gone through the 60s you know we were still going through you know the the point where people were were using drugs and so it was an everyday thing it's like it's like yeah. they're doing with marijuana now you know legalize it and all that so you know it's like oh it's not so bad but it does have lasting implications on people. It's just different, di different physiologies. Well, I don't know if you've, I mean, Cheryl, have you ever experimented with LSD? I have not. Okay. Well, I have, and let me tell you, it, there, it's very much about the setting itself and the environment that you're, you're, you're actually doing, you're actually taking that drug. And for, you can, you know, you can imagine so, these soldiers in padded cells not being told what they were given with a bunch of doctors and nurses around them, it's, it would be pretty freaky for them. Sure. And, and so, you know, <laughs> yeah, I mean, it's, well, LSD, LSD is freaky on its own, but you, you put it in a kind of clinical setting like that. It must have, it couldn't have been a great trip though. I will say this, one of the soldiers that we did speak with who was experimented on with LSD said he had a fantastic time an incredible time that really opened uh, it's a it, it's varied it's really what it, it really is who is actually like what you're bringing to that mm -hmm. and uh but that was very rare i'll just that say was, that. that was also lsd yeah um if you took like bz one of the exercises they do is have them put on a gas mask and the person be be befuddled and not able to put on one so they try to force it on his face and help him get it on well one of these guys commented later saying that he thought it was the severed head of his battalion commander that they were showing in front of him so i mean he was just terrified through the whole right. experience yeah it is a big leap from lsd yeah. to bz lsd you know was a recreational drug as you said charlotte yeah. in the 60s one of the chemicals that they experimented with was um, phenocyclidine. It's called Agent SN at the time. And that one there we know is the street drug angel dust. Right. 
Right. Now imagine that being applied in combat. And now you've got a bunch of enemy soldiers with guns high on PCP. <laughs> that would look like Night of the Living Dead. Yeah, that, that had a very sh that was short lived. The PCP. I think they yeah. realized quickly that this was not an incapacitating drug. If anything, well, no, they thought it was. It just required levels that were not attainable in the field. It wasn't potent right. enough. And what was interesting about those PCP experiments is that that was one of the times that the, a soldier had to be hospitalized. Yeah. because they basically was or they were overdosed on pcp and it was at that time that the the brass at edgewood said hey we need to bring in a psychiatrist if we're going to be testing these drugs um and that's how dr james ketchum was brought into the program initially yeah and he is i mean if you if you watch a do the documentary on discovery plus you'll understand that Ketchum is an incredibly complex character and man. He was a genius sci scientist. Um, he was a genius from the age of four. And he was brought into this arena that were really pushing the boundaries of consciousness. And, and, and he found it fascinating. He was a psychiatrist. Of course he would. And so he really dove into this program deeply. And eventually, very quickly, he took over the program and the research of the program and he guided it. But the thing is, is that he was in the army and he needed to sell the research to the, the, the brass who were funding it. And so he made these very elaborate films of the experiments he he told me off camera that he kind of saw himself as the Orson Welles of the U.S. Army because previous to him, the Army films were very dry and cookie cut. Science films. Science films. He knew he needed to sell this program hard because it was so kind of out there mm -hmm. that he made these very, very dramatic uh, cinematic, cinematic, uh, cinematic films that really wanted to, he wanted to wow the brass. And he did that because the program lasted for decades and he accomplished that. And we, we actually did get to, we, we catch him provided us with some of those films that we do highlight within the documentary itself. And they're incredible. They're just, it, it's an incredible kind of page of the Cold War history that is really, really unknown. And he documented it, I think, superbly. It's just fascinating that it went on until 1975. I mean, they must have been really interested, in, you know, in utilizing that stuff. Well, the uh, they did keep an interest in it into a long time. But the thing that really ended everything was the uh, end of the draft. When the draft ended, there was no longer a steady supply of willing volunteers for something like this. So you have a thing to where you can come up with a great chemical and it could be a great one that you might want to use in the field as a weapon, but without proving that it has any effect on people, you cannot make it into a weapon. And this is kind of a paradox with chemical biological weapons. We like to think of them as super lethal. The problem is you can't prove lethality ethically. So the truth is, 
the ones that are reliable and could be considered are really more incapacitants than lethal. So my question is, when they were giving this stuff to these guys, like you say, some were in padded rooms and whatnot. I mean, were they practicing ways to deliver? I mean, like like, like you say, you know, up the nose sometimes and smoke. I mean, were, were they lobbing smoke bombs at these guys, smoke grenades or whatever, just to see what effect they would have? Now, the um, test that they did in the field was very highly controlled. They had uh, three smoke generators producing a fairly precise amount of uh, chemical in the air. And they monitored their breathing and um, were able to figure out what dosage that they actually received and compare that with how much incapacitation they had. So they did that, but they would also then do, uh, yes, weapon tests, China Lake, Dugway Proving Grounds. They had a whole bunch of weapons that were air delivered and then put out monitors to see how much of coverage they had with these weapons. They were mostly small arms type. I wouldn't say small arms, but they were type of weapons you'd use in Vietnam with like tear gas. They're roughly that same size. They'd impact a hectare or two. What strikes me with this is, you know, the... The, the vision of it changing war you know warfare as we knew it yet there, there there was a big delay of how long the effects took so in the meantime you know what, what I'm thinking I'm not laughing about it, I'm just saying in yeah. the meantime while you're waiting for this to take effect they're still shooting each other it's actually worse than that um so the as far as the military brass was concerned they thought it'd be like in the movies where people just go to sleep and then they'd wake up several hours later then they see uh, Ketchum's films on this, and they see they're not. They're like they're drunk. Some of them are their erratic behavior. And that kind of spooked them because now you've got a bunch of people running around with guns who are not responding to command, are not able to understand what's going on around them. That's kind of dangerous. Mm -hmm. So when it got to the policymakers up to the um, Secretary of Defense level, they looked at this and uh, they said that until there was something that was not producing such unpredictable erratic behavior until they found a chemical incapacitant, they were really out. They didn't consider it something that they could use. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. It's, you know, it's horrible to think the lasting effects it had on the soldiers, right? But with you, but with you chuckling, it makes me chuckle because, you know, how straight and stiff the military is anyway to be testing this stuff and seeing these guys acting like this. Most of it. Yeah. Must have been a hoot when they were taking the notes, even though you know, even though the effect, the after effects weren't, weren't very good, you know. Well, th that's that said, the the uh, the Ketchum's predecessor, Doctor Van Sim, uh, notoriously would take every drug before they would give into the soldiers. He would test out those drugs, and Doctor Sim um, also um, he might have been taking. Um, other available stimulants at the time as well, because if you remember in the 60s, that amphetamines were basically like vitamins. Bennies. Yeah. <laughs> yeah exactly. And and so, you know, we think about the army as a very straight-laced, uh, you know, uh, uh, unit. But Edgewood Arsenal was a, a world upon itself. Um, there wasn't anybody really overseeing what was happening there. There was nobody really, there was no oversight, uh, very little oversight. And it was up to the scientists like Ketchum to really kind of create these, these, these testing scenarios. And, you know, 
um, a lot. Edgewood was both military and civilian uh, post. And so there were scientists there that weren't in the army as well. Mm -hmm. um, and we get into that a little bit in the documentary, which is an interesting aspect of it, is that Edgewood Arsenal, the psychochemical program, was a very closed-knit unit under Ketchum's command. But Edgewood Arsenal itself was a very large facility, and there was a lot going on there. And one of the aspects that we get into is after World War II, when America brought over Nazi scientists under Project Paperclip, whitewashed their histories as Nazis, and and really uh, like they enveloped them within our scientific community. And we really looked into if there was any Nazi scientists actually working with the psychochemical program. We did uncover that there were Nazi scientists working at Edgewood at the time, but we couldn't make the connection to the psychochemical program. Um, there's also other possible connections to the CIA with Edgewood at the time as well, which we also try to really, really lift the hood on uh, in the documentary. And it's a very interesting crossover uh, that we did make. Well, this reminds me of the, of the Mercury space program when they brought those guys through and they really didn't know what to test them for and they were they were allowed to do whatever tests they could on those poor guys. <laughs> yeah, it was the, it was the Wild West. I mean, this was yeah. a whole new terrain: psychochemicals, mm -hmm. a, a weapon that can that can incapacitate not physically but mentally. It was wide open, and no, there were no rules, and so it, it really was. It, it was. It, you know, but again, Ketchum as a as a hard nosed scientist, he availed to me all of the data and all of the testing uh, that that and this, I mean it is to the T that he really really did collect data in a very scientific way on this very wild out there you know experiments that they were they were doing. So the, the sad thing is the documentary did not show enough on what Sim did. And I, I say that because some of the stuff he did, there was a Nike missile battery outside Washington, D.C. They added LSD to the coffee of the uh, missile crews. These guys didn't know they were being drugged. And then his kind of... This his is a nuclear base. This is a nuclear base. I mean, talk about like no oversight. Right. Oh, and really the, the, but this guy, this guy's idea of doing scientific research was looking over the shoulders of these guys and then subjectively saying, well, does he think he's tr they're tracking airplanes adequately or not? You know, and that's not the same thing as saying, yeah, the guy's incapable of doing his job. That's mm -hmm. just this guy thinking the guy's incapable of doing his job. Ketchum turned that around and was able to show with a battery of psychological tests and comparing it with performance that, yes, these guys will have, if they have this dosage, they will not have this amount of performance. The method he came up with could be used for anything. You could use it for alcohol or uh side effects of mm -hmm. consumer drugs. Well, Ketchum did, after after Edgewood uh, program shut down, he did go on to work um, in a very these very early studies on how mm -hmm. marijuana 
uh, affected drivers on the road. And so he brought the framework that he worked out in Edgewood to the, to the uh, kind of national, the first national study of marijuana use and driving. So, you know, after, you know, after the fact with, with these veterans, what, 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 what kind of, well, excuse me, what kind of after effects were they suffering from? Well, uh, it varied. Um, certainly a, a lot of them were suffering from flashbacks. Um, the BZ especially, and most of the soldiers that we did profile within the, the documentary uh, partook in the BZ experiments. And again, BZ is very different than LSD. Mm-hmm. LSD, you can have a, a good enlightening trip. BZ was a delirium-inducing drug. It was nightmarish, the effects. And another aspect of BZ, would it would wipe your memory. So you couldn't exactly remember the experience. It was somewhere in the, the, the recesses of your mind. And this was what the flashbacks stemmed from of these soldiers decades later is that they were recalling these incidences and experiences they had under the drug that were frightening. And they couldn't process them because at the time they weren't, they weren't experiencing it in a normal state of mind. And so it's very, I mean, there's a lot of layers to the experiences that they had, but also the after effects. Mm-hmm. Um, I can tell you that um, some of the soldiers who I spoke with, um, you know, they would wake up, they still do to this day, wake up thrashing at night um, and haunted by these, these, these very um, kind of clouded memories of their Edgewood experience. And we're talking 40, 50 years later, Mm -hmm. you know, so it must've had a very, very, very heavy effect on these soldiers. They tried to do a follow-up with the National Academy of Sciences about 1980, and they couldn't find most of the veterans to do it. And uh, I think the comment from the veterans is they were like, well, no one actually reached out to them either. The other thing was um, Jim Ketchum points out that he tried to do a follow-up study and essentially was told there wasn't a budget to do it with. And this is this is a problem. It's like if you do experiments on people, you need to have follow up. You need to have expectations of doing follow ups from day one. And that appears to have been something that was really missed. And it's interesting because because today we the army itself, the military and DOD are very interested in in starting to conduct new human experiments with a whole different arena of kind of the the neural link which is basically um wiring not not hard wire but wiring the brain to weapon weapon systems human computer interfacing and you need you, you need humans to test that technology mm-hmm. and so um but i believe at the 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 um the ethicists who are working for the military going into that program are fully aware of, (laughs) of the parameters that they need to stay within 
to conduct these kinds of experiments. And I believe that the experiments at Edgewood really do dictate the mistakes that were made back then that we don't want to repeat today. So, you know, for these soldiers, they really feel like they've been lost in history. Mm -hmm. They've never been acknowledged for the sacrifices, services they, they made to the country um, because of the secrecy of the program, but also because this was a very dark chapter in military history that, again, the DOD really doesn't want to highlight. Mm -hmm. But the legacy of those soldiers really do stem to today to, the, the, to really con how we're going to conduct the new line of experiments with, an, with the, the cutting edge technology that the army is really interested in. A lot of the protocols that we have today around human testing didn't exist at the time that these experiments took place. Mm -hmm. I mean, you'll see that with uh, stuff where they did a study on prisons, psychological studies and things like that, mm -hmm. where people were not adequately informed or had the ability to stop the study when they should have. What, uh, Nick's bringing up here with contemporary work. Yeah, I've met one of these bioethicists who's working for the Air Force. They're definitely aware of what those studies were like and what was missing. There was no uh, independent review board. In 78, they made a general order to separate the um, chemical weapons side at Edgewood from the defense medical side because they realized there was a conflict of interest. Mm -hmm. You know, and these things, these things did not exist before that. It was from experience, bad experiences that we learned to adapt and change things. So essentially, did, did, did all, all this time with these these poor soldiers that were doing this, they never, they were never able to like put any of that to to work, right? Uh, are you asking if they, we ever use psychochemicals in a yeah, real field, world scenario? Yeah, yeah. yeah the field. <laughs> Reed, I'll let you cover that. Yeah. So. Um, to my knowledge and other scholars, there's no incident to where these psychochemicals were used by the United States. Mm -hmm. um, there's a suspicion that something like BZ might have been used in the Balkans, but that's just a human rights watch has a report on that. There was also reports that maybe it was used in Vietnam. There's some people that think that might be the case, but we can't find any documentation to confirm that. So maybe it was done experimentally, but we don't know how it was done. And nothing has been made available to even people within the government who have clearances to look at these things. They haven't found anything either. Now, something we uncovered within the research in the documentary is the crossover with the CIA and the Army on these on drug experiments. And there was at Edgewood, the CIA did use enlisted soldiers for on their own behalf for their own intentions of these drugs. But these were, this was very different than I think the Army's goal was to incapacitate large groups of soldiers. The CIA was much more interested in targeting individuals, especially heads of state, uh, Castro at the time as well, um, to to induce these drugs onto them and make them seem crazy or uh, alcoholic or you know out of their minds and so these were almost like these these uh, uh these 
these psychological assassinations that they were really interested in. Um, and again, with Castro, I mean, you know, the CIA, we ran the gamut of how to bring this guy down. And he was a survivor. He survived every attempt, blowing up cigars, poisoning the fish he ate, you know, um, dosing him with LSD and, and other drugs. The, he, we never, we never could manage to. Robert Kennedy could never manage to get him down. There was a, there was a scientist who um, visited Fort Detrick, who worked for the President's Science Advisory Committee, and he, uh, he kind of um, found it amusing that this entire army facility that was supposed to make biological weapons didn't mean anything to the president. The only thing that mattered was this one little building where they made secret covert weapons for assassination of Castro. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, I find that frightening in a lot of ways because, I mean, what if they slip something like this to Putin? Well, let's, let's hope they do. <laughs> wow. <laughs> I think Putin is very well guarded and very isolated. I think... Um, yeah, I mean he's not he he's not a very popular individual right now in the world. And You've so noticed I, he has very long tables. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> yeah. yeah, and I, I, I'm sure that's not just for COVID. You know. <laughs> yeah, but can uh, you imagine? You know, Putin on an LSD trip or something. I mean, it just, it just boggles the mind with the control. Oh, let's let, please let's not. You know. God. <laughs> But, you know, I mean, when you say, you know, it, it's interesting because uh, when you say it's scary, what, why do you think it's, uh, are you, is it scary that these, the, there's this potential for this weapon out? It's, it's scary for the potential, the power he has to be on like an LSD trip and, and call him the oh, shots. we're talking about Putin. Yeah, yeah. well, no, that's a, that's a real concern with psychochemicals. One of the arguments against it was that what if you incapacitate mentally imbalance a bunch of Warsaw Pact generals right. and then they decide to start lobbing nuclear weapons? <laughs> yeah. Wow. You know, I mean, it's it's a concern. That's why the erratic behavior part was not really well liked about it. But also to what um, Nick was saying about the CIA, the CIA was more like a client of these things. Mm -hmm. You had that uh, Fort Detrick and Edgewood, they were making devices for special forces. And then the same devices, there was like the CIA would say, hey, we would like to see if we could use, leverage some of these for our operations. Mm -hmm. And they had what they called MK Delta, which was a... Um, Kind of a wool's a Woolworth catalog of uh, different types of covert weapons and chemicals that they could use for assassination, interrogation, and things like that. So these were things that they were available to clandestine agents. Now the report is is that they weren't very fond of this. That they many of the agents were uh, objected to them on moral grounds, mm. but it didn't seem to bother them that they could also then arrange for the enemies of a p political opponent to get. Uh, kidnapped and murdered so <laughs> i mean what's what's ironic though is that i think last week or a couple of weeks ago the van announced that they're going to be using um psychedelics as yeah uh therapeutics for soldiers with ptsd mm -hmm. mushrooms mdma ketamine 
these are now on the roster of of drugs that could have these breakthroughs with soldiers who are suffering PTSD. And what's ironic is that, you know, 50 years ago, these types of drugs actually caused the PTSD that right. soldiers are, are experiencing today. But right. these same drugs we're using to actually heal these soldiers. I just find that really ironic. It is ironic. Yeah. So they had a lot of chemicals that they experimented with, a lot of them that they screened. Uh, ecstasy was one of the ones they screened. I've seen nothing that they've actually used it in human trials or anything. Mm -hmm. But these drugs do have promising effects for treating PTSD. There's this whole notion that you can use uh, like Valium or these kind of chemicals, and it will suppress the memories people have from combat, and they won't get battle fatigue or these latent behavioral issues. There's some other ethical concerns about that, though, because they feel better about committing whatever atrocities they might too. That's not necessarily That's true. a good thing. That's true. Well, you know, the thing is, and I can tell you from experience, gabapentin messes yeah. with my memory. Yeah. It that was in glow fun. lights for kids at, by accident, wasn't it? Yeah. So, so, so I can understand them lo looking at those drugs to do that because gabapentin, man, I can't take it because after a couple days, my mind is just like, it takes me 10 minutes to get a thought. <laughs> yeah. You know, it's just. So where do you see this all going? I mean, you, you, or, let me ask Nick this. Let me change gears a little bit. When you wanted to talk to people about this, how hard was it to get the people to talk? Um, well, it, it certainly took a little doing with Ketchum. Dr. Mm -hmm. Ketchum to actually sit down with him for a few days and and do an on-camera interview um, because he was very forthcoming with the research he did. He wrote a book upon mm -hmm. it, and it, mm -hmm. it was a very, very, uh, I, I believe it, a, a very revealing book and a very truthful book about the, the, the research he was doing from his perspective. Once I did interview Ketchum, I realized that I really needed to start searching and looking for some veterans who would talk about it. Mm -hmm. And um, what what I did stumble upon is that these vets, this was like, you know, we're talking about, early, you know, 2010, around 2012. And the internet had been out for six or seven years. And these vets had actually networked uh, over the internet. So once I did talk to uh, one of the soldiers that is really prominent within the documentary, Frank Rochelle, mm -hmm. he did connect me to a lot of different uh, other vets that he, he had networked with. And everybody was forthcoming. And I'll tell you why. Because these soldiers were put under these secrecios for more than 50, no, more than 40 years, almost 50 years. And they couldn't, and a lot of them were stayed very true to that oath where even when they were having these issues after the fact, they wouldn't tell their families, their wives, their, their kids about why they believe they were having these challenges. And also they couldn't go to the VA because of the secrecy oath and say, hey, I was involved with this secret experiment using drugs and I think it screwed me up and I need help. 
they couldn't go to the VA to say that. Now, one of the vets that I that we do uh, uh, profile is Dave Dufresne, and he really does experience a lot of a lot of adverse effects. And he finally broke down and he went to the VA and he said, mm-hmm. look, guys, you know, there was this crazy experiment program that I was involved in and I really am suffering from this. And he told me the 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 VA doctor said to him, you're crazy. The army never experimented on soldiers with drugs. Mm-hmm. You know, you're making this up. And he said that was the last time he went to the VA. And so yeah. one of the, I mean, these, these soldiers actually did get together and lodge a civil case against the army and the DOD and the CIA. And one of this, w- one of the asks was that they would be released from the secrecy oath and that they could uh, be, uh, be eligible for VA benefits. And some of those soldiers are still fighting that today because again, you go back and say, Hey, uh, you know, uh, mentally, I'm not right. It's very difficult to prove that. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. They had in the 1990s National Science National Academy of Sciences had a thing on the mustard gas experiments done with veterans. That one there, they recommended, and the Army and VA agreed that veterans should get compensation for cancer and other ailments that they would suffer because of that. I knew uh, people at Edgewood, historic, the historian there and his unit, they spent a lot of time answering veterans' requests and supplying them documents to prove that they were exposed. Mm-hmm. And then I remember going to, visiting with these guys, and it was like 10-plus years later, they're going through this, and it's like not a single VA uh, claim had been approved after, after supplying these documents to these veterans to go to get claims from the VA. Is that because um, the, 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 the upper ups are squashing all that or what? I think it's pure bureaucracy, uh-huh. honestly. I mean, like with uh, Agent Orange, you have this thing to where it's like, well, you can prove that you've been exposed if you're in the Air Force because sure. it would be in your unit that you're working with it. But if you're in the Army, you're just a foot soldier and someone called you and says, fly this helicopter. <laughs> and you're applying Agent Orange. And you have no record other than you were in some place where they used it. You could have and, a photograph of you applying it, and that would not be proof enough. But also, I mean, time is on the bureaucracy side of the army. Yeah. They could wait it out and just let these soldiers die or just kind of fade away. And that's really, I think that's the, the um, kind of unseen policy dealing with veteran issues across the board in our country is that when it's when the reality is is too harsh to really see or bring into the light the army will wait this out until that generation of soldiers have died off mm-hmm. and that's what happened to the atomic vets that's a lot what happened to the agent orange vets and this is what's happening to the edgewood vets today now on the on their military records, there, there, there's no report of this either on there, right? That's all been squashed. Well, no, I mean there were there was there was um, there was a fire that happened in one of the warehouses out in St. Louis that housed a lot of these records of these soldiers at Edgewood. Now, 
you know, from this, from the vet's point of view, this wasn't an accident. Right. This was, you know, it, they all went up in flames. But again, you know, there, there, there are in the archives um, reports that of the experiments that the soldiers can really file for. And if there's any vets from Edgewood out there right now, um, you should uh, uh, click on uh, edgewoodvets.org. And there's a lot of information of finding your files if you haven't yet. Yeah. Um, Reed, so as you started looking more and more into this, how, how did you get to where you knew so much about this? Oh, it's, yeah, that's um, a good question. I've always wanted to know that too, Reed. Like, how did you get into this so deeply? Yeah, so, so the Can answer to that is... I mean, it's not like, you know, when you're a kid, they, you know, they ask you in class, what do you want to be when you grow up? I yeah. want to be a chemical weapons historian. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no, it's... That's a look back in the Cold War days. You had... Um, we had, of course, a lot of fear about nuclear war, nuclear weapons, but then also information would come up about chemical and biological weapons, but you'd find that there was really almost no information about what they were. Mm -hmm. A lot of concern about what they might do, but not a lot of factual information about what they were. So I really dug deep into trying to understand what they were, how they work, trying to just answer that question of, well, what is the problem? Because you need to go to the source. You can't just talk about a problem without talking about what it is. And so I've tried to research that. And as I got deeper into it, I kind of realized that there really, there wasn't a lot of information here because there's a lot of confusion in it. And that for me was a uh, kind of a personal passion trying to understand the interface between the science and technology, the military vision and the national security relevance at trying to say, hey, how does this stuff come together for these things to emerge and be something? And then ultimately that political public sphere, even if it is something, is it something we want? Mm -hmm. And what you see here, like this example, just think of this. If you were to use something like this in the field, in a conflict, how many veterans would come out of that saying they were malaffected because of that? And that's what you run into is you run into a situation to where these kind of weapons, including tactical nukes, mm -hmm. they leave us to where there's enough ambiguity and enough um, latent health effects afterwards that it would be a political nightmare for anyone to consider because they will be living with it for decades. Is, it, is the research like going down a rabbit hole because one thing will lead to another and one, you know, there's little bits and pieces of grab? Yeah, most certainly. <laughs> There, there's a there's a lot of there's a lot of information out there, but there's also a lot of information withheld from the public, so it's very difficult to get into it. And um, but it's one of these things. It's fascinating because you see that there's an interplay with policymakers, military people trying to figure out, hey, we got real world problems. What are possible solutions? Uh, we mentioned that this program ended in 75, but there was another thing in the 1990s called super riot control agents. Well, that was kind of a reliving of the same program saying, hey, can we come up with incapacitants again for counterterrorism purposes? And that got shut down with the Chemical Weapons Convention. 
Hey, hey Charlotte, uh, I would love to stay, I would love to stay, but I have to put my kid to bed now. Okay, okay. Thank you so much, Nick. I appreciate you coming on. Okay, take care now. Thank you very much. Yes, thank you. And thank you both for coming on. Hey, anyway, Reed, um, so to me, history repeats itself. So we're yeah. gonna see this stuff over and over, right? Oh, it's very possible. Our main concern right now is the uh Russia has assassinated people with Novichok nerve agents. Okay, they signed the we Chemical Weapons Convention. Signing the Chemical Weapons Convention means they're not supposed to have any kind of chemicals like that. Mm -hmm. But that those type of assassinations suggest that maybe they do. Yeah. And the State Department recently released a uh, report in January that accused the uh, Russia and China of having active biological weapon programs. That, too, is, is contrary to the Biological Weapons Convention from 75. So it's we do see a possibility of these things reemerging. Well, that's what the whole thing with this Ukraine thing was, too, is people were afraid that they had this biological weapon that they were going to hit everybody with. Yeah, there was a concern of that being a possibility, that some of the uh, Russian propaganda was a prelude for them using it as a... Um, say a retaliation or something like that or making an incident out of it and doing a false flag type thing so there was there's a lot of concerns that we have these things being used in conflicts around the world the um, thing about them is that they are mass casualty weapons they're mass they're uh, area weapons and they're mass effect weapons so these are kind of things that you can say you want to take out a football field of people and you can take it out Absolutely. So what's next for you? Uh, currently, I'm working on a... Um, so I did a chapter in a book on agroterrorism, on anti-crop weapon history, and I'm currently working and hoping to get published here very soon, a uh, book on um, anti-crop air power. It's a study of anti-crop air power of the United States from 1941 through 1975. And there we take a concept of a weapon from cradle to grave, the idea that you could affect a famine by turning something that would be a tactic like blockades into a weapon, an artifact, like a chemical weapon or a biological weapon. So that's a book I'm currently working on. I'm also working on a second edition of a history I did on radiological weapons that was written during COVID and is regrettable because I it's just horrible. <laughs> Fantastic, though. How can people find you, sir? Um, so you can go out to Amazon, look Reed Kirby up. Uh, I have a comic book out there that I wrote for arms control specialists that was uh, the sergeant, a biological weapon. It's meant to, uh, in a, an approachable way, to walk someone through what a biological weapon is and how it operates. That was meant for analysts and policy researchers to kind of understand these weapons and the uh, in the arms control community and it's available for purchase out there as well as the uh, regrettable radiological one that a second edition will come out soon <laughs> okay do you have a website uh, i do you can go to uh, readkirby.com um the uh, part that would be of interest to people though is that it's a slash military history mm -hmm. and that part uh is definitely where it shows what i've done in for military history type work 
fantastic. I want to thank both of you guys again for coming on. I really appreciate it. It was a surprise to see Nick. And, yeah, thank uh, you very really much. Appreciate it. I don't know what was wrong with my mouth tonight. It just didn't want to work. <laughs> just like when I went to push the buttons in the beginning, I didn't push the right damn buttons. Who knows? But um, I want to thank you both for coming on. I'd like to get you back on later on, you know, if, 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 if more, you know, to update on this stuff. Sure. I will send you an email once the other publication comes out. Sounds good. Sounds good. All right. You have a good evening, sir. Thank you so much for coming on. I appreciate yeah. it. Thank you All very right. much. Bye-bye. Okay. Well, I learned a lot tonight. My mouth wasn't working quite like I wanted it to. <laughs> I don't know why. Sometimes it happens. Maybe I'm too tired. I was out working in the yard today. Anyway, tomorrow, of course, is Friday. So it's Nancy Matt's Friday, and that's our casual Friday. And we're going to be talking about grief. Stages of grief and, and how people cope with grief. And so... Uh, it should be an interesting night and in how a psychic helps people with grief, right? So it should be an interesting night, and uh, I'm looking forward to it. But I hope you uh, learned something tonight. I was going to say enjoy tonight. We were kind of laughing about it, but I mean, it's really nothing to laugh at because when they gave these guys these drugs, you know, I've seen people very, very high. It can be funny, but I've also seen them at the other spectrum, like with angel dust, where they're totally blown, where their minds are totally blown out, and uh you know they're they're hard to control. They're seeing things and, and whatnot. So it's it's not a game, but it is funny in, in a lot of ways when you know when when somebody's at the other spectrum of being high. But I'm not I'm not you know I'm not labeling everybody should do this. They, you know no no no. I'm just saying it's just there is some comical stuff in in there. Like he says they're hitting the fences and stuff. And yeah, that's what they do. People get silly sometimes, but people also can see. Horrible, horrible nightmares and stuff. So, I mean, the, 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 there's the flip side of that. Anyway, before I put my foot in it anymore, I'm going to shut up. But I want to thank everybody for coming tonight. And if you're watching from Facebook, please do follow. And if you're watching from Twitch, please follow. And if you're watching from YouTube, please hit that subscribe button because we're always looking for subscribers. 250 plus videos over there. And uh, I think there's a little bit of something for everything. In fact, this is a perfect example of that where I veer off the paranormal topic and I talk about something else. So, um, again, I want to thank everybody for coming tonight. I'll give you Reed's contact information and the video information, which is on Discovery Plus right now, so you guys can check it out. And then I'm going to sign off here because I have to work on some content tonight. So here we go with this, and away we go. ReedKirby.com forward slash military dot slash forward slash military hyphen historian. Someday I'll learn to read. And the video is Dr. Delirium and the Edgewood Experiments. Okay, guys, once again, I will see you tomorrow. Have a nice day, 6.30 p.m. Pacific. 